welcome to the first Norfolk Folklore Society of 2024. Um, this is the third in our series of talks for our um, collaboration with the Norfolk Heritage Centre and the British Library's Living Knowledge Network. I have to write it down every time because it's quite a lot to say. <laughs> um, tonight, Lucy Spirit and Rachel Duffield will be presenting a talk on the Brown Lady of Raymond Ball and the history of spirit photography. Um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with this story at all, but this photo, oh my gosh, I grew up with this photo, and uh, I think probably quite a lot of us did. <laughs> and when I found out it was Norfolk, yeah. like, which was actually only fairly recently, I was, I was over the moon, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing everything, and uh, I think without further ado, I'll, yeah. I'll pass you over. Rachel and Lucy. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Norfolk Library. How lovely. Uh, I'm Rachel. This is Lucy. Now, Lucy is the brains of the um, outfit. <laughs> she did all the uh, research. So blame her for any factual errors. No, um, she did the, all the research. I'm merely the uh, speaking person. So any questions you may have need to be directed to Lucy. If she can't answer the question, she will take your email address and email you with an answer which will be thoroughly researched. Definitely, and then, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a spiral bound booklet by the time it reaches you. Um, but yeah, so I'm the person uh, doing the sort of entertaining bit today. Can everybody hear me all right, first of all? Yeah, good. Um, if I talk too fast, please tell me to slow down. I get overexcited. It's sort of adrenaline and performance and that sort of thing. Uh, so yeah, do tell me if I'm talking uh, illegibly. <laughs> Whatever the, the word is, you know what I mean. So, uh, okay, so I am um, a history, bit of a history nerd. I've worked for Norfolk Museums since time immemorial, um, do lots of talks and uh, work with young people in youth engagement, and uh, I do some art and all sorts of different things. So I'm a general sort of culture vulture type person. Uh, Lucy is um, the researcher, she's a writer. She said she's an open-minded skeptic. <laughs> I must say that. And uh, I call her the spooky expert. So um, between us, I think it's quite a good story that we're going to tell you this evening. So it's going to be in three parts, after which there will be a Q&A. However, if you do have questions in the middle of it, if you find a gap in my talking, please do throw your hand up and we can try and attend to questions as we go. So part one will be a brief history of Raynham and the life of its infamous ghost, plus how she became a worldwide sensation. Ooh. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, part two will be the history of spirit photography and, a and uh, its controversial reputation. And the photographer and sceptic who battled in court over its authenticity. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, it's getting exciting already. The legacy of spirit photography is part three and a conclusion to be drawn by you, the audience. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and part four questions uh, as mentioned previously. So let us begin. The Brown Lady of Raynham Hall. Raynham Hall, as you may or may not know, is in West Norfolk, built um, in 1619 under Sir Robert Townsend. Uh, further, there it is, lovely picture. Further expansion was carried out in the 1800s under Charles, who was the second Viscount Townsend, and it remains in the Townsend family to this very day. Thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs> so our story begins around 1700 with Charles's wife, the vivacious and beautiful Lady Dorothy Walpole, sister of Sir Robert Walpole, 
Britain's first Prime Minister. How about that? So we're connections in high places. But it was common knowledge that the marriage was not a good one. It was quite unhappy. Various reasons and rumours abounded about why this might be. Some were that the Viscountess was unfaithful, she was frivolous, she was extravagant. And then there was, of course, her husband's infamous fiery temper. Not a good combination. So a lot of this information comes from the diaries of Marchioness Gwiladis Townsend, not to be confused with the name Gladys, this is Gwiladis, a 20th century owner of the hall. There she is, what a beauty. So uh, in 1936, uh, she described Dorothy as a charming and frivolous spendthrift with a pardonable love for pretty clothes, judging from a lengthy bill for chiffons which is kept amongst our family papers. <laughs> so uh, Dorothy was um, a good mum, but for some reason, at one point she was denied, denied access to her kids, and their upbringing was given over completely to her mother-in-law. Which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, in 1726, according to folklore, Lady Walpole was locked in her rooms and let starve to death. Terrible thing. But Gwiladis says, no, that's not right. Her quote is, in the 17th century, enforced starvation in surroundings like those of Rain and Moore would have been impossible unless Lady Townsend had staged a hunger strike of such magnitude that she died from it. And with such an important brother as Sir Robert Walpole living close by, she could not have been removed in this manner. However, she was starved in another way. She was starved of love and affection. Her purpose in life was removed, and thus, we believe, her spirit and soul diminished. Records show, good old records, that she actually died of smallpox in 1726. So she doubtless was confined to her rooms, uh, as the legend suggests. May she rest in peace and rise in glory. Or maybe along the corridors. <laughs> Lady Dorothy Walpole therefore embarked upon an eventful afterlife. She appeared so frequently that she became known as the family ghost. And uh, her usual haunts were the corridors and stairways of the hall. Pictures of stairways, in case you're not certain <laughs> what stairway. They are raining. They are raining. Yeah. <laughs> Relevant staircase picture. So it's here on the grand main staircase that Lady Walpole was to make her most famous appearance. So there were several sightings. Sighting number one was in 1835 by a man called Major Loftus, a family friend attending a party. On going to bed in the small hours, he met a lady in a brown silk dress on the landing. He thought she was a real lady, someone who was at the party, and he called out to her, but she was gone. Loftus was undeterred. He stationed himself at a point in the corridor where the phantom couldn't be missed the next night. His plan worked and he encountered a handsome woman dressed in brown, but to his horror, two empty eye sockets represented the place where her eyes should have been. Loftus made a sketch of what he'd seen the next morning, and this is a modern interpretation of what Major Loftus might have seen, and there she is, look, in her brown dress. <laughs> As a result of that sketch, 
three things happened. Number one, Lord Charles Townsend and all his children all admitting to have seen the brown lady that had come into their bedrooms at night, apparently. The thing that happened next was that the entire staff handed in their notice. <laughs> the third thing that happened was that Townsend replaced his staff with not more staff, but a team of detectives. Mr Townsend, or Viscount Townsend, Lord whatever he is, not, was not happy and decided some anonymous prankster had a vendetta against him. The whole thing was sort of one enormous practical joke. So he set out to prove that this was the case. Gualadis recounts the family's tale, ending thus. The, the detectives remained at Raynham for months on end without obtaining the smallest clue, either to the ghost or to the instigator of the suspected trickery, the case of the brown lady proving as elusive as any modern unsolved police mystery. So we move now to sighting number two. So, in 1836, Captain Frederick Marriott was a friend of a fam the family, and he actually asked to sleep in the most haunted room, the bedroom, at Raynham Hall, because he wanted to prove Townsend's uh, prankster theory, he wanted to say, definitely not, uh, definitely not a ghost. I have to say at this point, if I was going to be a ghost, and I had to choose my outfit for all eternity, it wouldn't be brown. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> So uh, anyway, Frederick Marriott, the captain, the friend of the family who wanted to prove this theory, uh, luckily his daughter Florence uh, wrote in great detail about his experience. So I'm going to read this out, it's an excerpt. Uh, it's too long for me to remember, so here it is in uh, Florence's diary. <laughs> Very good. She writes... He took possession of the room in which the portrait of the apparition hung and in which she had been often seen and slept each night with a loaded revolver under his pillow. On the third night, nephews of the baronet knocked at his door and asked him to step over to their room. As they were leaving the room, he caught up his revolver. In case you meet the brown lady, he said, laughing. <laughs> the corridor was long and dark for the lights had been extinguished. But as they reached the middle of it, they saw the glimmer of a lamp coming towards them from the other end. One of the ladies going to visit the nurseries, whispered the young Townsends. My father was in shirt and trousers only, and in his native modesty made him feel uncomfortable. So he slipped within one of the outer doors in order to conceal himself until the lady should have passed by. He watched her approaching nearer and nearer until, as she was close enough for him to distinguish the colours and style of her costume, he recognised the figure as the facsimile of the portrait of the brown lady. He had his finger on the trigger of his revolver and was about to demand it to stop and give the reasons for its presence there when the figure halted of its own accord and holding the lighted lamp she carried to her features grinned in a malicious and diabolical manner at him. <laughs> this act so infuriated my father that he discharged the revolver right in her face. <laughs> the figure instantly disappeared and the bullet passed through the door lodged in the panel of the door opposite. My father never again attempted to interfere with the brown lady of rain. <laughs> 
So thank you, Florence, for that wonderful story. But on the end, at the end of the 19th century, it seems that Raynham Hall had fallen on hard times like many of these large estates. And this is uh, evidenced by these um, receipts. Uh, are they receipts? No, it's uh, auction. They're raising money by selling all their lovely stuff. They're selling all their lovely stuff. Sadly. So they're selling off the family silver, as it were, to try and uh, produce a little bit more money, it seems. And another way to do that was to marry into money, of course. And in 1905, Gwaladis married John Townsend, and thank goodness she did, and she kept her diaries. Uh, so we've got lots of nice information. And this was an attempt to alleviate the Hall's uh, financial problems. Marchioness Townsend took on the restoration of the house, which led her to writing her book, True Ghost Stories. Do we, we do have one. We do have We yes. do have. Not only a picture, yeah. a real thing. Yeah. That is a copy of it. So it was common practice around this time for aristocratic ladies to document their hauntings. And uh, the magazine Country Life uh, described the era as an age in which a pall of loss and decay hung over many formerly splendid residences. And for struggling owners, a haunted history was one way to stay connected to an illustrious past. So this was, I suppose, the middle and upper classes, and particularly women, who were very keen on the late 19th and early 20th century vogue for a thing called spiritualism. Now, I want you to remember that word, ladies and gentlemen. We will return to that word and that subject later. What was the word? Spiritualism. Very good. <laughs> so in uh, 1936, True Ghost Stories was published. Which brings us to sighting number three, because that was also in 1936. The brown lady made her most famous appearance. On the 19th of September, 1936, two professional photographers from Country Life magazine uh, visited Raynham Hall to document the architecture. They were Captain Hubert Provand and his assistant Indre Shearer. They had the most up-to-date photographic equipment and the last photo of the day was no other place than the Grand Staircase. So the story goes that as Provend prepared to take his photo with his head under the black cloth, watch the birdie kind of situation, <laughs> Shearer suddenly saw, quote, a vapoury form gradually assuming the appearance of a woman. Shearer shouted the command to quickly take the photo, and seconds later, the image that we see today was captured. Dun, dun, dun. The famous image on the staircase. Can we there have another? Ooh. Ooh, I think we should. Yeah, yes, she deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, three facts I'd like to give you now. Uh, the resulting photograph was published in Country Life magazine on the uh, 26th of December, 1936. And uh, True Ghost Stories, the book, was also published in 1936 with the Brown Lady of Raynham Hall as its principal story. One more fact remains around this same subject. A Country Life article from the 2000s says this. An unorthodox yet successful publicity stunt the story, coupled with the country life photograph, helped put the house back on the cultural map. Is this just a lucky coincidence, ladies and gentlemen? I beg you, dwell upon that point. <laughs> <laughs> 
the photograph quickly became the subject of controversy. To fully understand the extent of the debate that followed, we must understand its context. Now, as a historian, I'm very keen on context. It, it means everything. And so, ladies and gentlemen, folklorists and photographers, cynics and seance seekers, please suspend your disbelief as we travel back through time and across the pond to 19th century America, where the publication of a supposed ghost photograph may have had a very different reception thanks to the dubious practice of spirit photography. And with that, I'm going to just take a brief drink. It's only water. <laughs> Not that That's sort it. of spirit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So part two, the, as promised, the history of spirit photography. So this was a craze. Oh, that's a good photo. Yeah. Well, is it though? That's <laughs> what we're asking. <laughs> <laughs> the history of spirit photography, which originated in America, um, it encompasses two Victorian crazes, which are uh, photography and spiritualism. It was known as a social religious movement and basically was the belief that consciousness can survive death and the deceased can contact and interact with the living via various methods, including photography. So at its beginnings, we have the Fox sisters, Kate, Maggie and Leah. There they are, not to be confused with the Bronte sisters in any way. 1848, Kate, Maggie and Leah Bronte. Kate and Maggie didn't have much to do and uh, they began inviting guests to their New York home to hear the spirit of a murdered peddler rapping on the walls. Now, the spirit's interactions became well-known locally and escalated to theatrical performances with elaborate lighting, chilling music, table tapping and seances. And uh, the Fox sisters became known as mediums, and mediums became celebrities. They began conducting regular seances for paying members of the public, who began to form a firm belief that it was possible for the living to contact the dead. It was the eldest sister, Leah, who made the leap to profiteering and connection to the growing sort of media and entertainment industries. And this is what distinguished spiritualism from other uh, religious movements. This program is for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> this may look familiar to you. <laughs> so I suppose audiences today love filmed attempts to capture images of ghostly. I can remember um, Yvette Fielding after her VP today, you know, going in dark buildings and whatnot. Uh, so why would the Victorians be any different? This is an exciting uh, thing to think about. And photographers, of course, saw this as, I suppose, easy money. Um, early camera technology meant that images often had strange ghostly figures in the background due to a really long exposure time of about 20 minutes with early photography. So uh, anyone moving into the frame would leave a sort of ghostly shadow behind them. And unscrupulous photographers, of course, took advantage of that. I, these are some examples of um, ones, aren't they? Yes. I suppose you worked that out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Give them some credit. <laughs> 
I'm Rachel. <laughs> so in 1861, spirit photographers um, began cashing in on American Civil War grief, basically. So uh, the surge in spiritualism was a direct response to the massive uh, battlefield casualties. So who were the believers? Who believed in this stuff? So it was, it was mainly women and war survivors, those left behind. And um, it was mainly the middle and upper classes who got into this, so those with disposable income. Um, Queen Victoria was one person who kind of really liked uh, spiritualism. And after Prince Albert died, she had lots of seances at Buckingham Palace. Another famous lady, Mary Todd Lincoln, organised seances in the White House uh, to try and contact her deceased son. And she employed a spirit photographer to capture an image of her husband, Abraham Lincoln, and miraculously, he managed to do so. <laughs> so, <laughs> there he is. Wow. Wow, indeed. <laughs> uh, yet, in 1888, the Fox sisters made a sensational confession. They confessed that their murdered peddler had been all a complete hoax. The tapping noises of the murdered peddler had been them cracking their knuckles under the table. However, ardent followers refused to renounce their faith in spiritualism, maybe taking comfort from the idea that you can speak to somebody after they've gone. So by 1897, the spiritualist movement had more than 8 million followers throughout America and Europe. One of its most famous supporters was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He uh, defended spirit photography in the, the, his, uh, not his piece that he wrote, <laughs> called <laughs> Tract, Tract, The Case for Spirit Photography. Incidentally, he also believed um, in the whole Cottingley Fairies uh, story. All I can think about that is what would Sherlock Holmes say? It's not very logical, <laughs> that's all. Um, so in London in 1862, the Ghost Club was formed which was a society that focused on the scientific study of alleged paranormal activities in order to prove or refute the existence of paranormal phenomena. Members included Charles Dickens, Harry Price, who we will meet later, and Thomas Edison, who intended to develop a spirit phone that would summon and record the voices of the dead. Who are you gonna call? Thomas Edison! Thank you. <laughs> 1882, the Society for Psychical Research was founded in London, which remains, as I'm sure you're aware, active and prominent to this day. We're going to return now to Mary Todd Lincoln, back in 1869, who, as a fully paid-up member of the spiritualist movement, uh, would uh, invite Abraham, her husband, to her seances. And after she died, she sought out the man that was known as the world's <coughs> best spirit photographer, a man called William Mumler. Do we have a picture? We do. Yeah. There he is. Lo and behold, Mumler managed to capture a portrait of them both in his photographic studio, the one that you've seen, on command. And it's the most well-known of Mumler's images. However, not everybody was convinced, and in 1869, he was taken to court on suspicion of fraud. Mm. They brought in a celebrity expert witness. 
He was testified against by the celebrated showman and self-confessed trickster, quoted in contemporary literature as an expert on humbuggery. <laughs> Mumler was charged, uh, it was, in fact, P.T. Barnum. Who else is it going to be? Uh, so Mumler was making a lot of money. He was charging between 5 and $10 per picture, which was a lot of money at the time. So uh, Barnum claimed that Mumler was breaking into customers' houses and stealing photographs in order to produce the images. Uh, so they thought that all the customers of spirit photographers had to rely on for comparison were their memories and hopes. So if a customer shared enough information with a photographer, and if the selected face was faint and blurry enough, the resulting spirit could convince a person who wanted to be convinced. At the trial, Barnum and professional photographers demonstrated nine different ways to fake a ghost image through double exposure. Imagine the scene as Barnum in a courthouse, an audience wrapped in front of him. Roll up, roll up, ladies and gentlemen. Can you imagine it? But not one different way to fake a ghost image, not two different ways to fake a ghost image, but ladies and gentlemen, nine different ways to fake a ghost image before your very eyes. Good old Barnum. And um, quite disappointingly, doesn't look much like um, Hugh Jackman. <laughs> so, uh, Mumler was incredibly acquitted and continued his practice, but his career declined. In the UK, people did also have their doubts. In uh, 1875, there was a UK spirit image investigator called William Stainton Moses, and he had investigated over 600 spirit photographs and said that no more than a dozen may be supernatural. Heartbreakingly, he said that there are people out there who would recognise a sheet and a broom as their dear departed. In the UK, uh, well, like the Civil War in America, in the UK, World War I was the biggest catalyst for a huge um, upsurge in spirit photography. And William Hope was one of the main men in the 1920s. He was a professional photographer and he was able to get crisper and clearer images than anyone who had gone before him. Do you remember Harry Price? We mentioned him. He was in the club with Charles Dickens and Thomas Edison and a member of the Society for Psychical Research. In 1922, Price felt it was imperative that William Hope should be investigated. Hope agreed and was confident, some might say, hopeful. <laughs> so he always invited sitters to bring along their own sealed photographic plates in order to avoid any suspicion of tampering. Uh, visits to the studio were permitted, visitors to the studio, sorry, were permitted to physically inspect his camera, including the lens in the case. And um, Price thought that Hope was secretly switching the sealed plates provided by the customer for his own previously altered plates. Therefore, Price duly provided his own plates, but secretly marked them with an invisible X-ray insignia. But on development, the insignia was revealed, so Hope has not switched the plates. So what was he doing? Price worked out that Hope's spirit photographs were just a clever double exposure, and I'm going to read this bit out because it's uh, complicated. It Are you going to put it up there as well? Hope was carrying out his hoax by inserting a previously prepared positive glass plate featuring the image of the deceased 
into the camera in front of an unused sensitive glass plate which was then used to photograph the sitter. This double exposure technique not only captured the image of the sitter but also the ghostly image from the pre-prepared glass plate. All clear, hopefully. <laughs> so like William Mumler, William Hope was indeed proved a fraud. But members of the spiritualist movement continued to defend him, including Conan Doyle, who'd lost his uh, dear son Kingsley just after World War I. Um, but the twist is that both Price and Hope were bracketed as manipulators as a result of this trial. They were accused equally of deception and tampering. And both men's careers continued unscathed as a result. So 14 years later... Oh, who's that? Conan Doyle. Yeah. Oh, nice. 14 years later, in 1936, our story comes full circle when Price examined the photograph of the Brown Lady of Raynham Hall on behalf of the Society for Psychical Research. So why did he want to do that? I suppose it was the provenance of the photograph. It was a, a posh place. And it had been taken by a professional photographer and his assistant. It had been published in a respected publication and it was in a prominent location. So what were Price's conclusions? His conclusion was that the photograph had not been tampered with. And here's the quote. He says, I will say at once, I was impressed. I was told a perfectly simple story. Mr. Indra Shearer saw the apparition descending the stairs at the precise moment when Captain Proven's head was under the black cloth. A shout, and the cap was off and the flash bulb fired, with the results which we now see. I could not shake their story and I had no right to disbelieve them. Only collusion between the two men would account for the ghost if it is a fake. The negative is entirely innocent of any faking. There you go. Can we end our story there? Can we, Lucy? Sadly, no. I'd like to, but... <laughs> <laughs> we can't. So we're going to travel forward another 70 years to 2006, when leading SPR paranormal investigator Alan Murdy was rummaging in the manuscript department at Cambridge University Library. And he rummaged long, ladies and gentlemen, he rummaged hard, and he found a file containing another exhaustive investigation conducted by the SPR in 1937, which concludes, there is almost certainly a mundane explanation of the spectral image in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> They say the camera may have leaked light onto the photographic plate or the camera might have been shaken during its lengthy six-second exposure. So in conclusion, what do we think? For those of us that are sceptics, this will be proof enough. For those of us who are like the hopeful sitters at the photographer's studio, this will serve as merely a possible explanation. I invite you all to reach your own conclusion. You don't have to vote, would you? <laughs> we would like to humbly echo the words of the late, great X-Files. I want to believe! <laughs> <laughs> there is music. Can we <laughs> uh, that's it. Thank you very much. Any questions? Thank you. Oh, Mulder and Scully aren't coming.
was friends with the photographers. Well, this was going to be one, that was one of my other yeah. Was he like... Yeah, and obviously they were peddling the book mm. at the time the photo was taken. So even though I really, really want to believe that's a ghost <laughs> photo, I don't think it is. But it'd be interesting, I don't know, if they were going to be using the double exposure technique, you would think that the SPR would be... Yeah, exactly. I think... Yeah, I think... I just think they were biased. I think they kind of knew, because a lot of Conan Doyle's writing on spirit photography, he explains exactly how it's all faked, but then says, but we mustn't believe that, because life is full of mystery, and <laughs> so they just don't, they're like me, they don't want to believe it. <laughs> Is there actually, is there 
There is, yeah. So sort of just to one if, side of it. I'm wondering if it was a shaft of light that's yeah. coming from the window mm. yeah. and it's a shaft of light maybe coming from somewhere else. There's a lot of, of reflected upon itself. Um when they talk about the sightings, there's all sorts of you know, there was a shaft of light coming from this direction mm. and you know, I think it's sort of a series of staircases, corridors, landings. There's all sorts of sort of visual trickery that could mm. be going on, just optical illusions. Mm. Um, I don't want to hog the question, so if anyone else has any, just jump in. <laughs> but um, just going back to um, like the sightings through the ages, I don't know, did all of them describe her as wearing brown? Yes. So it, I don't believe that Indri described her as wearing brown, which is quite yeah, interesting. That's I don't true. Know, that's something that yeah, he just described a vapoury form, which yeah. doesn't give the sense of colour. She seems to be like pretty, like I'm here, I'm mm. testing my reference. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know for her to like not materialise in that outfit is a bit unusual. Yeah, it's yeah, it's all a bit. But I obviously want it to be true. Yeah, so exactly. Unless there's two. The white lady. Has the family that still live there, have they, when's the last time they've said that they've seen or felt anything, or will they talk about it, or will they not talk about I it? I have kind of scoured and tried to get in touch, but no dice, so I don't know, because some, I've done a bit of writing about various, you know, homes in Norfolk and their ghosts, and some love to talk about it, and some just don't want to know, um, but in the True Ghost Stories book, when Gladys owned it she loved all of it and there's probably 10 or 15 more ghosts at Raynham Hall that are regularly seen <laughs> so um it's definitely haunted but I think the current owners aren't keen on talking about it that's weird though why would they because it's not like they're trying to gonna try and sell that house no. to see, I imagine so it's weird that they're not talking about it I think some people just don't like to admit about that supernatural things exist that because makes me feel like it's more likely to be haunted that they... <laughs> 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 Sorry, did you have a question? I was just going to say, I know a couple of people that work at Raymond Hall. Yeah. And um, sort of going along what you're saying, he talks about it amongst, they talk about it amongst themselves. And it's well known, maybe the people that work there, they won't go in certain rooms on their own. And oh, brilliant. Things like that. But I don't think the lady tells really wants anything. No, they don't. I think it's a bit of an embarrassment. Yeah, they're embarrassed about yeah. it. Um, and also it doesn't reflect well, obviously, on some of our relatives going back at... Well, that's true, years, yeah. That's true, so. yeah. But, yeah, it's very well known within the staff. Mm. And the ladies that I spoke to said that you know, they were fascinated about, you know, what you had talked about. Oh, wow. And they'd certainly be able to answer the question about the... Yeah. yeah, that sounds... Really yeah, it's a good conversation to have. Thank you so much. Oh, no, the same... All right. I, I, um, I was going to ask, do you know if they still have the portrait? or do? It yes, exist? they do. Yeah, they still have the portrait. Was she wearing brown in the portrait? No. She, um, in most of the images I've seen online, it looks quite pale blue, but there's a version of it in the <coughs> National Portrait Gallery that I think has been cleaned up, and it's actually quite a bright blue with a red, and there's another famous one of her in white. 
So I haven't seen anything of her in a brown dress. So like Rachel says, I don't know why she's dressed in brown. <laughs> Hello. I wondered whether spirit photography was ever successfully challenged in court, or did interest in it drop before? Well, it wasn't with these two, the most famous American and the most famous UK. They were both acquitted. Um, so I don't know if anybody else was successfully charged with it being fraudulent or not. Again, I can look into that. Um, but given that they were the most prominent and they were acquitted, I guess it was thought, you know, anybody lesser, there's no point taking them to court because it's costly and these big guys didn't get um, prosecuted. So. But yes, I can look into that for you. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, it's just an observation, really, that um, things like the picture of the ghost of Lincoln and um, you mentioned um, it providing some sort of comfort mm. to people who've been bereaved. I was just thinking that the modern extension of that is people asking for deceased relatives to be photoshopped into their wedding photos. I haven't yeah. heard of that. Yeah. I didn't know about that. No. This is quite a big thing for oh, them. Right. Um, wow. Things, particularly in America. That's, um, yeah, it's exactly the get, same, get isn't it? You get a picture of dad and you mm. have him photographed with the bride and his I don't know what to the, think the, about the that, really. It kind of seems like a progression. Yeah, yeah. It's a sense of comfort there, wasn't mm. it? And feeling that somebody is still with them. Yeah. Someone can't actually get, like... Oh, Kanye made a hologram. Wow, that is another level. Kardashian hologram, and he kind of went, <laughs> you go, baby. And then he turned the screen on, and it was just like, hi, Kim, you clearly married the best man in the world, <laughs> Kanye. And it was like, who is this for exactly? It was like absolutely <laughs> bewildering. It's rad, yeah, yeah, do. It's very, it's preposterous, but yeah, but great. Hello. I've got just a comment rather than a question. Yeah. I really love when people try to shoot ghosts. <laughs> I haven't seen it myself, but I've heard there is still, yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, I could comment on the, the style of the photo, or any core photo. So it's quite the, the kind of the ghost in it is kind of almost amorphous and kind of faceless. Whereas I don't know whether it's just the examples you just on the presentation, but some of the ones that were shown to be hoaxes from like Hope and others, they're a lot more obvious, if you know what I mean. It's yeah. kind of like the sitter, and then it was like, hi, here's Lincoln, here's his yeah. beard. Here's yeah, his beard. yeah. He's in focus. Yeah. But the kind of, the, the Raymond one is a lot more kind of subtle, do you reckon? Yeah. Like, are there other kind of contemporary hoax photographs that use that kind of similar amorphous style? Or well, is it more of an outlier? I think that that is an amorphous style because of the previous ones, were so clear and so accurate that people were very suspicious. Where if you use something a bit more grainy, you can get away with it a bit more, perhaps. Um, I don't know of any contemporary examples. But again, I can look into it for you. Um, 
but yes, I think they were trying to get away from the whole thing where you can recognise the person. Okay, thank you. Lucy. Oh, hello. Oh, um, how, easy, how easy is it to get more of a copy of the True Ghost Stories book? Like, do the library Very have... easy. It, mm. It's from the wonderful world of books.com. That <laughs> 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 think it's about a pound. <laughs> yeah, the first one that came up was like one that was 200 pounds. Yeah, I saw that one too. <laughs> yeah. And I think, yeah, your library will be able to get it in for you. It's pretty. It's quite good, actually. Yeah, it's not brilliant, but it's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> No, they are um, Lady Townsend, Marchioness Townsend, and her friend. Um, her friend has written most of them. Oh, She's yeah. just written. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're the Maud folks of the outfit. Um, yeah, she, they've written them, and they're from all over the country. And okay. They're ones where either they've experienced something, or a close friend has Any other questions? Hello. Was there any revival in the interest in spirit photography post-World War II with a renewed loss? I don't think so. Does it track so. those sort of world events or was it just of a certain I period? think by World War II, people were more familiar with photography mm -hmm. and it kind of, you know, lost its... It wasn't just exclusively for professionals because uh, certainly when the Cottingley Fairies pictures were done... Um, it was by some children who had their dad's camera from home. So I think the public couldn't have been conned after World War Two. so, yeah. I guess the main thing like other forms of like contacting the dead, like, I don't know exactly when the media wars came in, but maybe, mm. you know... Like I think that was around the Fox Sisters time. Oh, was it really Fox yeah, Sisters? The, yeah, I think Ouija boards, yeah. But it was designed as a parlour game, wasn't mm. it? Yeah.